Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm Michael Quet, joined by my co-host, Siamo Malachi. Today we have on the show Barry Perigo. Billy is a staff writer covering social media and content moderation and responsible AI at Time Magazine. Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So today we're going to be discussing a recent feature piece that Billy wrote in February for Time called Inside, Inside Facebook's African Sweatshop. We'll be discussing the hyper-exploitation of tech workers in Africa and the brutal workings of content moderation work that makes social media feeds relatively free of illegal and nasty content. I want to note before continuing that we reached out to Daniel Motaung, the worker who blew the whistle on the working conditions detailed in Billy's story, and we're seeing if we can arrange to have him on the show as well. So Tech Empire is part of the Yellow Podcast Network and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. On Twitter, visit at TechEmpireCast. All right, so Billy, let's start with the basic question. What is Facebook's African sweatshop? And can you explain to us how you discovered this story? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I think everyone knows by now that uh, content moderation is a thing that happens on all of the biggest social networks in the world. Um, basically, if you have an uncensored uh, social network, that basically results in uh, people's feeds being filled with uh, all kinds of the most horrible content in the world. So uh pornography uh child exploitation videos of people being murdered uh raped uh the list goes on it's it's honestly um a pretty horrible insight into the worst parts of humanity and uh these systems these giant social media networks would be full of it and people would be exposed to it all the time if it weren't for the work of content moderators who are by and large young like relatively well-educated people who are employed by the big tech companies to basically sift through all of the most horrible content uh, and flag it so that it becomes, you know, taken down by these platforms. Now, uh, Facebook and uh, to a lesser extent, Twitter um, and TikTok as well would have you believe that most of this work is done by algorithms, by intelligent AI systems. Uh, but what these AI systems need in order to do their jobs properly is, is large corpuses of, of data that have been labeled by humans. For example, this is a video of somebody having their head chopped off or something like that. And in order to reach those large quantities of data, the humans have to do the labeling. Now, Facebook especially has become has come under like severe public scrutiny over its treatment of content moderators in the United States. There were a slew of big stories by The Verge in 2019 that showed how these people were being paid effectively the minimum wage in the US, how lots of them developed uh, trauma, PTSD, clinical depression as a result of this work, and how they weren't being supported adequately by uh, the third party companies that Facebook was employing to to carry out this work because Facebook, as with most other social media companies, does not do this work in-house. Uh, it doesn't effectively want these jobs to be done by Facebook employees. It wants a, a level of plausible deniability. 
So, as we also know, uh, Facebook is a global social network. It has, uh, you know, it's it's reachable from pretty much any country in the world, other than China and a, a few others. Um, and what that means is, it has to deal with a lot of hyper-local problems. So, political misinformation in Kenya is going to be is going to look very different from political misinformation uh, in the United States. In order to deal with that sort of thing, Facebook has to employ people in lots of different countries to do this content moderation. So the genesis for my story was me wondering, what does this work look like in countries where we haven't seen uh, the conditions for content moderators? And one of the big interesting and one of the big criticisms of Facebook coming out of the Facebook papers that Francis Haugen, the, the whistleblower, uh, leaked late last year was that um, there were internal complaints by Facebook employees that the company was not doing enough to stop the civil war escalating in Ethiopia via uh, horrific content, incitement to violence, hate speech on Facebook itself. So I basically set out to answer the question, who are the people doing the moderation of content coming out of Ethiopia? Uh, and that led me to discover that there was an office in Nairobi, Kenya, run by a third-party outsourcing company called Sama, um, which markets itself as an ethical AI company. It's, uh, it says that it's helped lift more than 50,000 people in the developing world out of poverty. Um, and its narrative is really one of, you know, we would like to give work, not aid. We believe that the only way to help people in developing countries is to kind of give them uh, what they call dignified digital work. And they believe, their kind of false-throated belief is that through the miracle of technology, we can bring better paid work to more people. Now, given what I knew about the job of content moderation, uh, this sounded fishy to me. So I began reaching out to people who work in this company. And before long, uh, I was met with a, a tale, basically, of what many employees, I spoke to more than a dozen current and former summit employees, and they basically all described to me this kind of workplace where there was very low pay, firstly, the lowest paid content moderators uh, in Facebook's Africa content moderation operation were paid as low, lower than $1.50 per hour um, and little more than that for the most senior employees, in fact. Um, it was a workplace that they characterized as, um, you know, full of, of fear and intimidation. Um, and they described to me coming down with symptoms very similar to what has already been described in the public domain, so PTSD, uh, clinical depression, anxiety as a result of the work. Now, the difference here is these people are paid far, far lower than the people in the US who have to be obviously paid by uh, at the minimum wage in, in the countries where they're employed. The minimum wage in, in Kenya is one of the lowest in the world. It's, um, you know, Sama would say that they pay triple the Kenyan minimum wage and, you know, effectively a living wage for life in Nairobi. But one of the things that was very clear from talking to all of these content moderators is that 
this is not a minimum wage or even a living wage job. It's a job that can saddle you with lifetime trauma, uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and beyond that, it's a workplace environment that is characterized by intimidation. So the core of the story, in fact, is an account of how in 2019, shortly after this office opened, all of these employees kind of came together and started discussing how they were not happy with the current system. They, lots of them said that they'd been hired under false pretenses. They weren't aware of the, the kind of traumatic nature of the work before they made the trip from lots of different countries around Africa to Kenya in order to begin their work. Uh, lots of them were beginning to discover that the work was having a, a strong impact on their mental health, a strong negative impact on their mental health. And so what they did was they band together, led by an employee called Daniel Mutaong, and decided to ask for a, a pay rise, firstly, and lots of other smaller kind of incremental changes, like clarity about their contracts and, and so on. And what happened was they presented this request to the SAMA leadership, and instead of negotiating, what SAMA did was they sent two of their most senior leaders from San Francisco, highly paid senior leaders, to Kenya. And before long, Daniel had been suspended from his job. Um, he was not allowed to go to the office. And everybody else who had been involved in signing this petition asking for more pay had been taken into one-to-one -one meetings. And in several accounts of those meetings, what I heard was that the most vocal employees were basically asked uh, by one specific member of the SAMA leadership team, Cindy Abramson, to um, basically convince their fellow employees to stand down. And there was a kind of suggestion that, you know, there might be something in it for them if they did so. Um, and for the more kind of rank and file members, Abramson basically intimated that uh, they would lose their jobs unless they stood down. And many employees described being told that uh, they'd done, Sama had done research about the workplace in Kenya, that this was a, a good place to work, that there were loads of people lining up to do this job if uh, they were to be got rid of. Um, and so Sama did not need to uh, accede to their requests for higher pay. Um, now, it's worth pointing out that Sama denies this. Uh, Cindy Abramson didn't respond to her request for comment when I reached out to her. Uh, for before the publication of the story. Um, but what is clear is that um, firing workers for attempting to organize is a violation of the Kenyan constitution. And so uh, what we have now is after the publication of this story, Daniel is now in the middle of taking a legal case against Sama and Meta, Facebook's parent company, for violations of uh, Kenyan labor law, basically. Um, Sama says, for its part, that it's a responsible employer, that there was no strike, which is technically true because they fired Daniel before the employees actually went on strike, even though they had threatened to go on strike. Uh, and the effect of doing that meant that the strike action, the kind of alliance, as they called it, uh, dissipated because everybody was really fearful. And um, yeah, nothing much happened after that.
except for another employee who about approximately a year later complained to his embassy, the South African embassy, and uh, effectively very little happened. Um, Sama was made aware that he had complained to the embassy because he also reached out to a Facebook employee, which is against the rules of employment at Sama, and he was fired for, for doing that. Uh, and that is also described in the story. So it's a it's a tale of an office where, on behalf of literally one of the biggest companies in the world and the biggest social network in the world, uh, you have these African, young African, well-educated people who are effectively being paid some of the lowest salaries uh, in the kind of, you know, by any developed company in the world uh, to effectively do one of the worst jobs in the world under circumstances that most people would describe as uh, pretty terrible. So um, if we're looking at this situation, uh, you have this company called Sama, it's Facebook, um, now called Meta, uh, outsources to them, they have a headquarters, so to speak, for African content moderation located in Kenya. Um, they're paying as low as $1.50 an hour. And not anymore, actually. They increased the uh, minimum payment for their employees after the publication of my story, uh, which they made clear to employees was definitely not a result of the publication of my story, but was always coming. Uh, I don't think many employees believed them. Right, right. And, um, and um, there were, was action within the company to, by workers to uh, increase their working conditions. Can you just tell for the audience a little bit about uh, what's so tough about content moderation, its onerousness, the PTSD part? What did the workers say to you specifically uh, when they were telling you about what it was like to work this job? Yeah, sure. So it's really interesting. I mean, I said earlier how Facebook wants to keep this work at arm's length, but it really is a job that is mediated by Facebook. So Facebook provides a, a computer system to SAMA or a, well, a, a, an online system. Well, not, okay, scrap all that. Facebook provides a system by which SAMA employees can moderate content on Facebook. Uh, and it's a system whereby you know, people are asked to log in, their movements on the platform attract. They are asked by SAMA to look at and action, as it's called, one piece of content approximately every 50 seconds. Um, what this means in practice is that um, employees are under like significant time pressure to um, make a decision about whether a piece of content violates Facebook's rules or not. And it really doesn't matter what kind of content they're being confronted with. So it could be a, you know, a horrific video of, you know, a child being raped or a woman being killed or, you know, a cartel doing a beheading or an ISIS uh, attack on innocent people, any number of like horrific things. And no matter how terrible this piece of content is, the employee is asked to make a decision about whether it belongs on the platform or not. And not only that, but under which specific policy of Facebook's 
the content is to not be allowed on Facebook. Um, so it's not a job that simply, you know, this is bad, this is not bad. It's I need to read and internalize all of the thousands of pages of Facebook's rules and have a, a clear enough understanding of those rules to say why this piece of content does or doesn't belong on the platform. It's also important to remember that these employees have been hired specifically because they are bilingual and they speak the uh, different, the multi, uh, the varied African languages that exist uh, on the continent. Um, and so this is, you know, really not an easy task. You have to be highly educated. You need to be able to read all of these policies and understand content in different languages and apply the rules in a very short period of time. Um, and in lots of cases, these are the people, you know, in the specific Ethiopian example, what they're being asked to do is make judgments about whether a specific video that is targeting their community, for example, constitutes hate speech or incitement to violence. Um, and that can be really damaging uh, mentally and, you know, just weigh on a person's conscience a lot. Uh, and these people are increasingly pressured by SAMA to um, meet these quotas. Facebook has said very publicly that it does not expect its employees to adhere to quotas. Um, however, I saw like much evidence of uh, SAMA employees being asked to keep to this average handling time. And not only that, but a quality score as well. So if they make too many wrong decisions, the number of decisions that they make is, is kind of quantified. And if they're not meeting a certain percentage, I think it's around 84% uh, of correct decisions, then they're then disciplined. Um, and it's, yeah, a system that is very much kind of surveilled to a, to a high degree. And that surveillance is enabled by Facebook's metrics, even if it's carried out by SAMA's supervisors. Okay, and just to uh, update you real quick, Siamo's uh, internet is dropping out, so he said just go on and, and carry on the podcast today without without him for the rest of it. So what has been, so, I mean, if we're looking at this, it's a really kind of disturbing story um, that kind of reflects the state of the world, right? So if you look at what, Samo is saying about paying people such low wages. Uh, basically, it seemed like they were saying something to the effect of, um, well, we don't want to distort the marketplace down here by paying people too much money, right? <laughs> like, it's kind of a little bit of a strange response to give. Um, like, what's going to happen if you pay these people, you know, what, $5 an hour, which is still on the cheap, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. amazing for them to say something like that. But obviously we know the state of the world is such that labor in the global South is taken advantage of because companies from the West are willing to go in and just pay people what the market rates are. So even if they're above um, a minimum wage in a poor country, that minimum wage is so low and so meager, it's hard for people in the West who have a decent, you know, standard of living to fathom having to work those kind of hours in that hard of a job for such low pay, but that's the world we occupy right now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, first of all, what does Facebook and Sama 
say to this? Like, isn't it just like, hey, at the end of the day, your Facebook is loaded with money. Why not just pay them a nice standard of living? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's when I asked Facebook about this, they said that they require their contractors to pay uh, a decent wage in the countries where they operate, basically. Uh, And they've, you know, I I tried to follow up with some more detailed questions, but they really stonewalled on that front. Um, And I think there's there's lots of things here. Partially, it's an outsourcing thing, uh, which is related to, you know, Facebook not wanting to have to deal with these tricky problems themselves. Uh, As far as Sam is concerned, they say that they're paying triple the minimum wage uh, and, you know, more than a living wage in these countries. And, well, in Kenya. And that only goes so far because in the conversations that I had with many employees, they were very much telling me, you know, I'm, I'm in, in some cases supporting a family. Uh, the money is effectively hand to mouth, one employee told me. And the, the, what constitutes a living wage in Kenya enables a much lower quality of life than what constitutes a living wage in London or in San Francisco. Um, and so what we see really is the mask slipping in the, um, the accounts of the conversations between Sama's management and Sama employees who were on strike back in 2019. Uh, according to those conversations, people were told directly by Sama's management that if they uh, continued to go on strike, then there were lots of other people lining up to take their jobs. And what that really shows us is that the, wa- the low wages are enabled by a, a large pool of uh, labor, basically, in these countries. And that is the reason that the, the, the wages are low. Um, and you know there are various reasons for that, including borders and colonial exploitation across generations, um, which you're probably more qualified to talk about than I am. Would you say that uh, Facebook outsourcing to a company like Sama uh, helps them to hide the hyper-exploitation of workers, um, one, and two, um, how much were you able to get Facebook to talk to you about these issues Um, because I had reached out to Facebook on multiple occasions um, doing my research and I was able to speak with them, do an interview one time. Um, They kind of then wanted to send me over to other people. And at the end of the day, they would never come through. Right. So one Facebook employee Um, pledged in a recorded interview to pass me along to other people. And all these, I was asking questions about e-commerce, trade policy at the WTO, um, you know, all sorts of things related to their role in the global South. And at the end of the day, eventually they're just like, you know, we're not going to respond to you. They just stop responding. Right. So one of my questions to you is, is how accessible were they? Because you, I think you did get some responses from them, but would they give you non-detailed responses? Would they give you kind of some general statements? Um, so again, um, you know, they're outsourcing here. That was, that was the first part of the question, right? Is that helping them hide in your opinion, um, the hyper-exploitation 
of labor in the global south and two um how accessible were they to you uh in terms of responding with detail to pointed questions um so as to the first question i think the story speaks for itself i don't really want to add anything uh as to the second question um the the meat of facebook's responses uh came to about four or five lines which quoted in the story uh facebook has a reputation for being extremely non-transparent uh especially with reporters who have shown themselves to be willing to ask difficult questions about uh facebook's record um you know facebook like there are lots of great people who work at facebook um and people with a conscience uh as you know shown in all of well most of francis haugen's leaks there are lots of employees working on on really important issues within the company but i think structurally uh the company is very much not set out set up to be transparent to be uh kind of publicly open about its flaws and what it's doing to um to improve them basically uh i think especially in this case the division of labor effectively between the two companies which you know you can make your own decision about whether it's set up specifically to obscure that uh labor uh differential that made it so that facebook could say you know these aren't questions for us they're questions for sama uh and of course sama like issued like blanket denials um they said that the reason that they sent a couple of the employees to kenya to negotiate well to quote unquote negotiate with these employees is because they care about their employees and they're a responsible employer uh which when i put that to some summer employees uh elicited a certain reaction um so yeah i think like it's it's very clear to me that um there are lots of unanswered questions about this entire story that could be answered by these two companies if they wanted to uh one interesting dynamic of all of this that i tackled in the follow up story to my my main piece is how after i published the first story facebook employees went to their internal forum workplace for employees only and began discussing it and one thing that one employee said was you know can we release the audits that we've done of sama have we done audits if so where are they what did they find uh did we know that people were being paid this much uh if so are, are we okay with it um or did we not know and if we didn't then surely that shows that there are severe flaws in the way that we're doing this um so all of these questions are unanswered i don't know whether there are any of these audits that exist if you're a facebook employee listening to this and you have access to those things i would love to see them uh you can contact me anonymously cuz ways to find out how on the internet um but yeah there's there's lots of unanswered questions about this that um if both of these companies were transparent then we would already know so then if you're asking facebook um did you email them did you were you able to get a live voice um and would you ask them questions like you know are there any audits um did you have a big list of questions and they only answered some of them you know how did that process work um i don't want to go into 
too much detail on this, but I will say that the only contact that I had was with Facebook's press team. They didn't make anybody with expertise on these issues available to speak with me candidly, either on the record or on background or off the record. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and you know, that's interesting to me because I've, I've seen uh, some people get, you know, pretty close and consistent access uh, to Facebook, uh, especially in, in the academic circuit that I'm a part of. And you look at what they report or they uh, write about in their journal articles and things like that. And you can see that Facebook must be cognizant of who is giving a kind of friendly interpretation and story about what Facebook is up to in the world, whereas other folks are getting shut out. And I find that, you know, really interesting um, and important. I think that should be discussed, right? Because there is a kind of um, insider access for some um, of those outside of Facebook who enjoy that insider access, but they're getting it because they're being loyal to Facebook. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, There are certain journalists who you know, occasionally do get access to Mark Zuckerberg to do these interviews, which seem to only focus on questions of the metaverse or Facebook's hardware releases, uh, which, you know, says a lot about the terms, presumably, I don't want to make any accusations here, but the terms presumably that that Facebook puts on those grants of access. And you see the same in the academic community. There was a case um, not too long ago of, of these researchers who were scraping Facebook data in order to get around Facebook's severe limitations on what kinds of data can be used for academic uh, access uh, and research into, you know, for example, what kind of ads are being shown on the platform. And some of these researchers literally had their account banned from Facebook for uh, apparently breaking Facebook's rules um, when all that they were trying to find out was very basic questions of, what kind of content are people seeing on Facebook and how can we quantify that? Because Facebook does not make that kind of data available. Uh, I mean, it uses the excuse of privacy and personal data, but, um, you know, lots of academics don't believe that those are legitimate excuses and in fact are obscuring some of the things that um, if Facebook were more transparent, then they would be able to do some important research on. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, So if we're looking at the uh, lawsuit. Um, I saw written online uh, on March 30th, the press reported uh, quote here, the workers have given Facebook an ultimatum of 21 days to address some 12 demands of fair treatment or face legal action, end quote. Um, Do you know the demands and how is this shaped up now that the 21 days have gone by? Yeah, so the demands are um, fair out there. I published on Twitter the full text of the legal letter. I don't have it in front of me right now, but um, I think one of the demands uh, was for Samar and and Meta to admit wrongdoing in this case, uh, to pay damages. Uh, There were quite a significant amount of others. I think um, there were 12 demands in total. I don't want to go into too much detail about uh, how the legal case is progressing, but I think uh, TechCrunch reported yesterday or the day before that uh, Sama and Meta now have both sent legal letters to the lawyers, which have basically denied a lot of the 
claims so you can you can count on the fact that they will not be meeting those demands and if the legal letters of the lawyers are to be believed uh, that means that we can ex- accept expect a lawsuit to be filed against both of those companies very soon yeah um now did you reach out to the kenyan government to see what how they felt about the regulations um whether or not it's in a violation of the law there is the lawsuit going through in the kenyan courts um how has that played out so far the lawsuit will be in the Kenyan courts, yeah. Um, I think it's the first time that Meta has been taken to court uh, for its practices in Kenya, which is quite interesting. Um, as for the Kenyan government, I reached out to the, um, the I can't remember the specific name of the agency, but the, the government agency concerned with labor relations um, to ask whether they had any records of uh, the trade union papers being filed uh, or asked for, as it were. Um, and I didn't get very much from them. I can't remember whether they responded or, or not, but there was nothing uh, that I was able to include in the story as a result of those conversations. Now, what has been the response um, to your stories? So in particular, I've been working on the issue of digital colonialism. We're working on it together with Siamo here and some other people in South Africa. Um, And from where I sit, there hasn't been a lot of attention to the issue. So if you look at the kind of Western intellectual classes and and the narrative there, um, the focus tends to be on the U.S., in Europe, if you look at regulations, uh, it's the same kind of thing. If, for example, if you were to read the antitrust scholarship, the uh, say Neil Brandeisian, Lena Khan, Matt Stoller um, kind of a circuit of scholarship, which, as a member of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, I'm you know privy to these conversations. You wouldn't know that they're is um, a kind of global South involved, right? And especially you won't ever hear the phrase American imperialism or things like that, right? And I've felt like over the years that um, the United States is a deeply patriotic country and acknowledging that there is an imperialist aspect to big tech, which is actually pretty central. Um, Most of the people who are using Facebook are in the global south, right? And these companies are so big because they have a global presence. Um, It's not the 340 some odd million Americans that are their market, it's a global marketplace. Um, So it seems to me that the global south issue in the question of neocolonialism and imperialism has been one that has been marginal at best. Um, obviously, at the same time, nobody is going to sit there in the tech rights community and say that it's okay for Facebook to have an African sweatshop, right? Outsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I can see people uh, obviously saying, well, it's good that the story was written. We're in support of, you know, the Kenyan people and the Kenyan workers as well. But I guess I'm still interested in how much play has it gotten um, in the West and also in Kenya. Uh, did you see that there was a lot of reporting about this inside of Kenya or, or other places? Yeah, to your final question, I was really interested to see that it got more uptake in the kind of responsible tech circles in uh, the West than it did in Kenya. Um, I'm not an expert in Kenyan politics. I know that there's an election coming up, obviously, so attention might be slightly diverted elsewhere. Uh, but I was interested to see how that, um, that wasn't taken up as a local issue. Uh, we might start to see that change as the lawsuit goes through the Kenyan courts. Um, I mean, the story, I mean, you can see the response that the story got on, on Twitter. I think there was more than 2,000 retweets of, of my tweet alone. Um, there were a significant number of people interested in this, but you're right. The tech discourse as a whole is disproportionately focused on what's going on in the US. I mean, the last few weeks, I've been forced to think about Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter every day of my professional life, which uh, tells you a lot about how the weaponization of attention is, is kind of diverted via these social platforms to things that uh, the super rich would like us to think about largely. Um, and obviously one of those things is not the exploitation of uh, workers in the global south. Now, I think the other thing that I also want to point out is that the labor relationship that my piece discusses is nothing new. I mean, even the title plays on this idea of a sweatshop, which exists in the garment industry and has done uh, throughout the entirety of the multi, uh, the several decades that the world has been a globalized economy. Um, these are questions of how capitalism operates in the 21st century. Uh, it just happens to be the newest iteration of those labor relationships. Um, I think it's especially stark considering that almost everybody in the world uses uh, a social media platform, or at least in the developed world. And that really makes the moral question a lot starker. It's like, do you want, no, knowing now that the social media platforms that you use are only free of trauma-inducing content because of the emotional and physical labor of these people, uh, does that make you less comfortable to use them? Does that make you more likely to call for these companies to change? We did see that there was an a instant reaction from Sama to slightly raise the wages to um, just above $2 an hour, which, again, is significantly lower than uh, these employees are paid in uh, other economies. And workers also still challenged it, right? They still mm -hmm. said, hey, you know, look, you're still, you know, paying us an extremely low wage. Exactly, exactly. One thing, and I think that's a really important point to point out, because one thing that the story has done is allowed for workers in different parts of the world to begin to talk to each other. There was a content moderation case in 
the States where, um, you know, several thousand Facebook content moderators were able to, to win some level of compensation from Facebook. It was a $52 million lawsuit, but it was a class, act, class action. So I think every content moderator only received in the, in the area of $1,000 or so, um, which is barely enough, you know, to pay for the costs of ongoing uh, therapy, for example. Um, but given that we're seeing an increase across the board of unionization in the tech world, we saw Amazon uh, workers in New York unionized recently successfully. Um, I think it is part of a global trend that uh, allows for the first time tech workers uh, of all stripes in the US to begin to think about the, the global nature of the economies that they are participating in and, you know, potentially, I don't want to oversell it too much, but potentially open the door to greater solidarity between these groups. Yeah. And um, I think that if we're looking at it from the perspective of, of digital colonialism, uh, as I understand it, Siamo, we, we chat all the time. Um, there's also the question of, of ownership and control. So if you're looking at social media networks, obviously they're designed as closed silos and that basically fences people into only a handful of networks. And what's interesting here to me um, is that there is legislation on the table to force interoperability of social media networks. Now, I wrote, um, believe it or not, to the New York Times in 2018, I submitted an op-ed uh, saying that, well, if you want to have some sort of uh, antitrust you know, regulation to try to do something about big social media networks, you have to make them interoperate. And I pointed to, if you're familiar with it, the Fediverse and, and Mastodon and these, this alternative interoperable social media um, universe that has several million users. And they responded back and they said, oh, this is two in the weeds, right? <laughs> now... <laughs> If you look at it now, the Digital Markets Act in Europe is looking at forcing some form of, of interoperability um, on uh, the big platforms and also the Access Act, which is a bill that's been proposed in the United States, is also looking to push that. Since I was working on this issue or, or looking into antitrust in the time that has passed since then, uh, last four years, I've become more critical of antitrust because I've realized that really it's about competitive capitalism and trying to make the rules more fair uh, in, in the marketplace, which is, you know, to me, better than nothing. But at the same time, when you're looking at the global South and you're preaching competition and you're in a place, you know, like I am here, say in South Africa right now, where half to two thirds of the population live under the meager poverty wage, uh, poverty rate of, you know, $3 a day. Uh, and that's just South Africa, you know, not to speak of many, many, many other places in the global South to say that, you know, competition is really the, the, the proper medicine for the global economy, uh, digital economy is, uh, I think, uh, problematic to, to put it very nicely. Um, yeah, I think, I'm, so I'm no expert on antitrust, but it is clear to me that lots of the arguments 
for uh, increasing competition in the tech sector come down to making sure that the economy of the United States is stronger in, in the long term, right? And the national laws for, for the betterment of the national economy. Uh, and, you know, th- that's not to say that, you know, some progressive uh, people might be able to, to build in uh, parts to those laws if they really wanted to, to protect the rights of workers abroad. Um, but yeah, I think, I think your analysis is correct that to a large extent, um, antitrust doesn't necessarily capture the issue of how these companies operate on a global scale. Right. And so to bring it back into the um, digital colonialism conversation, right, and the issue of workers, um, by all means, I, I always support workers trying to improve their livelihoods because when you're in that situation, of course, you know, like we should support and amplify their voices and and try to help them better their situation. At the same time, ultimately, if these big Western uh, corporations, including in Europe, so if you look at antitrust in Europe, uh, I have a couple articles I released recently, and I found that the the leading voices and and ministers um, in the big European countries, including Margaret Vestager, uh, who is basically the, the competition czar for the European Union, um, are basic, they're calling for European unicorns, right? So they're trying to build their own tech giants in Europe, and they're basically pushing antitrust at the American corporations to try to kind of cap the knees of the super giants and take on their own share of the pie. Right, and protect the rights of consumers is what they always, the language that they always use. So, right. I mean, what, what is a content moderator a consumer? Hard to say. No, not really. Right. And, if they're not based in Europe. Yeah, so like you, you see this kind of, um, you still see this kind of um, lack of, of thoughtfulness about the, the severity of the world situation. And coming back to the workers, the question then re- becomes, well, what would really truly be fair um, if you have better wages and working conditions for content moderators in the global South, it's intrinsically just and it's meaningful for the workers. But if the companies themselves and the networks themselves are still owned and controlled by the well-resourced, especially those in foreign territories, then um, is it really, is this the way we should be going or should we be looking at how to create a solution that will um, relinquish the means of, of computation and the privatized ownership of, of knowledge, intellectual property, data, and things like that, so that other countries are not dependent and then stuck in this unequal exchange and division of labor where they're doing menial tasks including mining for for metal and cash crop production, AI labeling, things like that, while the rich countries own the means of computation and the intellectual property. That to me, and also to Siamo, who unfortunately had to drop off off the call, is what we're pushing at to be a a part of the conversation or a central part of the conversation um, because 
Um, otherwise, we seem to just be playing out this kind of evolution of uh, colonialism as a, as a global status quo. Yeah, it's a shame, it's a shame that Siamo couldn't be here to talk about this with us. Um, I think the questions that you just raised are largely questions for academia to tackle rather than reporters to tackle. Uh, my main role is to kind of work out what's going on specifically in these companies and then report it. But um, it is true that we don't hear these questions very often in a tech press that's dominated by uh, concerns over what's going on in Silicon Valley and the rest of the United States rather than the entire world. Yeah, so I guess we'll wrap up here. Um, so looking forward with this case, I think it's it's important to uh, keep an eye on it. And, um, you know, myself and Sam are very appreciative that, that you ran this story. Um, and we hope to amplify it just a little bit by, by bringing you on the podcast. Um, looking forward, what can we expect to see? Um, should we be looking in the next few months for the lawsuit that uh, Daniel is uh, spearheading with some other organizations? Uh, what should we be keeping an eye on going forward? Yeah, I mean, firstly, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm sure you can expect to see something very, very soon. Uh, I'm not sure how much more I can say on that. Okay. All right. Um, Billy, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. And um, check out his story at uh, Time Magazine, uh, Facebook's African Sweatshop, inside Facebook's African Sweatshop. And be sure to uh, tune into um, Billy's uh, work over at Time. Thank you so much. Yeah. And if uh, you have any knowledge of these matters, then please don't hesitate. You can find me on Twitter uh, to reach out. Thanks, Michael. And thank you, Siama, as well.